You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 10. Overstuffed. Welcome to Denver Orbit, an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I'm Josh Madison. And I'm Ryan Connell. We've got a really great show this week. Josh is going to kick off his series on sound design called Signal to Noise. And we're going to hear amateur astronomy song for Ralph. But first, it's Thanksgiving. A day that the cartoon Garfield once hilariously said is the day people celebrate food by eating as much of it as possible. (laughs) Eat it, Heathcliff. Ron Doyle sent us this story by Rachel Trignano from The Narrators, recorded on 16th of November, 2016. The theme of the evening was overindulgence. Your next storyteller is a publicist and copywriter uh, who will let you touch her hair as long as you ask nicely and don't make it weird. Please welcome Rachel Trignano. Later? Uh, whatever you're into, I don't know. Oh, good. This is good because I'm like scared of microphones. It's the right height. How much breathing into the microphone is too much? Like, is there such a thing? I'm just going to just keep doing it. So it's been a rough week, y'all. So I'm just going to talk about watching my neighbors fuck. (laughs) Well, not just watching. We'll get to that later. But some background on me before we do. So I'm an Italian Jew from Gross, New Jersey. Not all New Jersey is gross, just where I'm from. And as an Italian Jew... I, uh, I come from two people who are very adept at taking offense at anything and holding grudges, either aggressively or passive-aggressively. I've mastered both. And uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've mellowed over the years. I'd say I average like three of the four agreements on any given day. But sometimes something will just like chat my ass. And I've got to prove my point because it's the principle of the thing. So here's where my neighbors come in. So one night, this is early this summer, I came home and uh, and I just heard this like loud theatrical moaning. I'm like, holy shit, what is going on? It's summertime and we live in old buildings, so we don't have any air conditioning and all of our windows are open. So it sounds like right in my living room. And I go to my living room window and not six feet from me, I see my neighbors having what I would eventually come to call extremely loud and incredibly close sex. This woman is like just bare ass naked, almost arms reached, legs in the air, guy's face planted right between him. And after my like, oh God, moment, I was like, I sympathized and I felt kind of bad for her. I was like, oh, maybe she didn't know I was home and maybe she didn't realize that her window was open and her blinds were up. You know, I was making some excuses. And then it happened a second time and a third and I was getting less sympathetic. And I started thinking, you know, like who, pushes their bed like right against a window and who leaves the window open with the blinds up 
and all the lights on while they're fucking in front of said window. So I take to Facebook, so I wanted to know genuinely, you know, when I have friends over for a mystery science theater style viewing party, do I provide the snacks? Is it like a BYO thing? I don't, I don't know. I don't do this very often. I mean, what does one pair with kind of snarky, smug, mildly disgusted voyeurism that's paired with surround sound sex and genitals at petting zoo proximity? <sighs> I'm guessing crudite. I don't, I don't know. You are with me. I like this. Let's keep going. All right. So... So, uh, you know, things just kind of keep getting worse and escalating. And, and pretty quickly, my life became just like standing at my window watching my neighbor violently fillet her boyfriend while I'm staying there with like my arms folded in my old band rug. It's like scowl on my face like a dad watching a house party across the street, like, oh, those damn Thompson kids. Oh. <laughs> and it wasn't just the sights that were so bothersome, it was the sounds, because again, like windows open, can't close them, it's summer. And imagine every sound you can hear during sex, like it's right next to you. And like, yes, including that one. <laughs> and so things are not going well. And then I remember in August, that was the breaking point. So I, I was driving around fruitlessly looking for a place to try and catch the Perseids meteor shower. And I failed miserably, and I was kind of bummed. And I came home late, and someone's like illegally parked in my space. And I'm like, oh, I'm in a mood. And I go inside, and I hear like the telltale guttural choking sounds of the extremely loud and incredibly close sex. And I walk up to my window, and like, sure enough, I missed the meteors, but got a great view of a full moon in Uranus. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck it, I'm out, I'm going to bed. So. But then like at 1 a.m. they start playing this awful techno music layered on top of the sex and I lose it. And I go to my window and I just like old Brooklyn woman, I'm just like, hey, go to bed, it's too loud. They start like screaming at them. And they, and they look at me, they see me. And I'm like, aha. Uh -huh. And they just totally ignored me and kept going back to it. And I just keep shouting until they stopped that night. And then, and it kept going like night for night. And so, and I'm like, okay, here's what I know. I know that they can see me, they can hear me, they know I know, they don't care and they're not stopping. And that's when it got ugly. So I start having my friends call me when they're fucking, right? I turn my ring away up and I go in my window and I just hold it there. I'm like, now. And so it rings and they always startle like animals on the Serengeti, you know? And I give a really loud and pretty insulting play-by-play -play of what was going on. And they could hear me, that wouldn't work, that didn't work. So I got my Annie, right? Like, you know, cops would like use music to flush people out, or, like criminals out of like hiding places. So I took my speakers, my stereo speakers, I put them in my window, and I would start playing like Strauss, Petula Clark's Downtown. Like whatever mood killer, like, like 10 CC's Dreadlock Holiday on repeat. Just like whatever. And that didn't work, but also that was, I mean, the Strauss went going too far, but it didn't work because um, classical music humor. Uh, <laughs> Like, they were being loud, loud was the problem, my neighbors didn't like it, I didn't like it, I didn't want to be another loud asshole. So I had to come up with things that were disturbing but quiet. So then I, I just started, I, you know, I just started racking my brain, and I would just start talking to them, conversationally. I would, I would like make farting sounds, I would heckle them. And what was weird is the guy was the only, it was her gig, her place, the guy was the only to respond. And he would always, and so we'd be like talking while they are fucking, and he would always respond, with he's like, hey, you like you want to come over? You want to? I'm like, no, no, this is gross. Like David Attenborough should be narrating this. I do not. No, stop. So, like, shit was getting weird. I was getting weird.
or weirder, to be fair. Like, like one night, I just, I was, it was like, it was like I was walking down this long road of crazy, and then just turned around and saw me behind myself, and I just went, just keep going. Just go. You're doing fine. Like one night, they were going at it, and I just stood there, I was just like out of ideas, so I was just standing there in my robe, like sharpening my kitchen knives while maintaining eye contact with him. That didn't even stop them, and I was like, ugh. So, and this goes on for weeks, weeks, and, and I'm posting all these occurrences on Facebook because my friends by now are like way into it, like what, like wanting updates and frankly give me really good ideas on how to sabotage them. And we were coming with these audacious ideas. We're like, giant telescopes, gorilla suits, sky's the limit. And then one day my friend messaged me, he's a great friend of mine, he's like, he's like, what do you need, seriously, let's just do this. And I'm like, you subsidize, I authorize, brother, let's do it. And I, that's when I heard myself say, send me the fog machine. <laughs> now, there have been many instances in my life where I have cranked the weird up to 11 and just yanked off that dial. And this is definitely one of them. So anyway, cut to a few weeks later and I'm just gleefully unpacking said fog machine, like voice activated LED laser lights, some disco strobe thing, like so all this stuff. And I start calculating, I'm so excited. And then something so obvious started happening that hadn't even occurred to me that was about to change everything. The cold weather was starting to come in and there were a whole new standoff because I was going to be damned if I closed my window. Well, I mean, let me back up. Maybe we're in a standoff. I was in a standoff. She, she was like doing her dishes or something. I don't know. But anyway, so I was gonna be damned if I closed my window first. And then one day in October, this is just last month, uh, I had a, a small but what was ultimately Pyrrhic victory. So they're going at it, they're doing their like loud, squishy, slappy thing, and I'm doing my angry dad thing in the window. And then they see me, and for some reason, they just like, they just stopped. And they pulled the blinds down for the first time. Oh, yes, exactly, for the first time in months. But they left them still open. And I'm like, and I'm, and I'm just like, I can still see you. And, and then they do this weird, like, sleepy cat swipe at the blinds. And I'm like, that's not, there was like a twisty thing. That's not how those, not, I can still see you. And they just like, kind of like got up and just like walked away naked. And, um, and then I shouted after them through our windows. I'm like, y'all just need some damn curtains. And they got curtains. Like two days later, I'm like, ha, oh. And it made me kind of nuts because, you know, her world was becoming shrouded in, in mystery to me and I needed to know her weak spots because I was so committed to this vision. You know, this is my opus. This is my gulag archipelago. It's basically creating a platoon with a fog machine and a strobe light and a really disturbing Easter bunny costume just waiting in the wings. <laughs> but the curtain stayed closed. And then finally, a few weeks ago, she closed her window first. And I'm sitting there with this pile of electronic gadgets and distractions, which is essentially the trash heap of my dignity, let's be real. And it's next to my meditation pillow. The irony is not lost on me there. And I just, I could not accept that it was over, that, you know, the window of opportunity on my grudge match had literally closed. So it took me a few weeks, but I finally accepted it. And I, uh, I packed everything up a few days ago, and I put it in my storage in my basement, in my building. And I had a bit of a come to Jesus with myself about the fact that I may have overindulged my puerile tendencies to completely, needlessly escalate situations. So I felt at peace with packing up the arsenal, for now.
<laughs> because springtime is going to be here before we know it. And when those windows open back up, it is going to be brutal. That's Rachel Trignano, everybody. I like to think that the first time that they closed the blinds was when that was the first time they were actually in love. It's kind of sweet that way, right? Just a thought. Rachel Trignano's poetry, fiction, and essays have been featured in NPR affiliate WABE's Storytellers and City Lights series, slam poet Saul Williams' chorus, a literary mixtape, the City of Atlanta's Elevate Public Art program, and numerous print and digital publications. A frequent literary performer and promoter since 2010, Rachel is a producer of Write Club Denver, that's write as in writing, a competitive literary performance show that raises money for charity. In her day-to-day life, she is a communications consultant and publicist, but please don't hold that against her. You can find more of her work at racheltregnano.com. That's Rachel, T-R-I-G-N-A-N-O.com. And if you haven't been to the Narrator's live show yet, you are really missing out. It's a pretty great time. Their last show of the year will take place on the 20th of December at Bumport Theater. You can find details about their live shows and find past episodes of their podcast at thenarrators.org. And hey, speaking of the internet, we have a pretty cool Instagram and Facebook page. They reflect Ryan and I pretty well in that they are both pretty nerdy and weird. We also have a playlist on Spotify now. Um, All the music that we play in between segments. It's pretty groovy, pretty swinging stuff. It's uh, It's the bee's knees. It's the swing and hip sounds that all the kids are listening to. Yeah. Hey, speaking of music, let's listen to some. Amateur astronomy, and there's an extra A in front of both of those words, is the experimental sound project of Denver-based producer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Kevin Larkin. For Ralph is a tribute to American music icon Dr. Ralph Stanley and is composed entirely of samples from his music and interviews.
very much. Now let's have another banjo tune, Ralph, if you're all set for one. You got a good pick there? Get me a piece. this I hear about you quitting picking the banjo. Kevin Larkin is a founding member of Chimney Choir and also performs under the name Pine Ross. Catch Chimney Choir at the Mercury Cafe on December 30th and 31st and listen to more amateur astronomy at soundcloud.com slash amateur astronomy. And remember, there's two A's in front of both of those words. Last up is the beginning of a new series brought to you by our own Josh Madison. I'm going to let him set it up, but before he does... Since it is Thanksgiving, we just wanted to say that we are truly thankful for all of you who have subscribed and been listening all along with us. Absolutely. We hope you continue to keep telling your friends. And we're also really thankful to all of the wonderful writers, artists, and musicians that have contributed to the show so far. We couldn't do it without you. We look forward to all the great stuff yet to be submitted. What you are listening to is an underwater cave in Yucatan, Mexico. It is known as one of the most silent places in the natural world. As you can tell, sound is everywhere. There's only a handful of places in the world that are really quiet, and even then, they're never actually silent. Our world is just filled with some kind of noise. Sound has the ability to make us feel at peace or put us on edge. 
and our brains memorize and catalog these sounds without even being aware of it. So naturally, when we watch something or listen to something, our ears are always going to be searching for sound to anchor us to a physical space or time. Right now, for instance, you should be hearing some friendly intro music that is signaling to your brain that we are at the beginning of something. So I'm starting an occasional series that will explore the way people make sound in all kinds of different ways, for all kinds of different reasons. Today, we're going to talk about sound design. And although sound design really starts all the way back in the Middle Ages for stage plays, because this is a podcast, we're going to talk about the use of sound design in vintage radio dramas. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company presents X minus one. At this point in history, when we want to sound like birds in a forest or boots walking down the street, we can just record it using equipment that is more portable and sensitive than ever. Even our phones have the ability to record pretty decent sound at this point, so creating the sounds of the real world around us is easier than ever. We can put a listener in a crowded coffee shop, or it could be talking to you from the platform of a London rail station. The way to recreate something through sound is more natural seeming than ever before. Digital sound recording and software has made the integration of sound into movies, TV, and podcasts, or radio, I suppose, much more sophisticated and perhaps a little ironically, much less noticeable. When we talk about good sound, we're really talking about how well it blends into the movie or TV show we're watching. The best sound design is only noticeable when it needs to be. But back when things like... Dimension and Gunsmoke were being produced, sound was made mostly in a studio. This was for a number of reasons. One, the industry standard starting in the 1930s and for decades afterwards was the reel-to-reel magnetic tape recorder. During the time we we're focusing our discussion, this equipment was huge. Sometimes it took up entire rooms. Naturally, this made it infeasible to try and record anything outside of the studio. And the portable equipment that did exist at the time was heavy, was ungainly, and the microphones were pretty low quality. Two, until about the late 40s, these old radio shows were actually transmitted live. So the sound men, later called Foley artists, as it wasn't always men, had to stand there with all the props at their disposal, making the sounds as they came up in the script. Well, we'll have some photos on our Instagram page of it. In fact, we'll even have a photo of Orson Welles' heart at work, which we'll get to later. Now, a lot of these sounds are pretty simple to achieve, like shoes walking on a wood floor. or doors opening and closing. These are clearly just those actual things. If there was music in a scene, it was just played on a phonograph at low volume. You might have heard someone walking through the snow, 
coming into a door and sitting in front of a roaring fire. What you're really hearing is someone mashing a bowl of cornstarch, a door in the studio, and crackling cellophane. And that brings us to three. Sound designers were often called upon to create sounds that didn't even exist at all. Sci-fi, suspense, and strange tale shows came into vogue around this time, and radio was a great medium for this. Sound designers were given free reign to come up with whatever sounds they thought made sense for the situation. They would have had to invent sounds for this scene of a Mars landing from the X-1 story, Mars is Heaven. Bridge to engine room. Stand by for deceleration. Fire forward tubes one and three. And since there wasn't any real-world example for people to compare against, the illusion would be complete. Here's the thing. In the early days, none of these sounds were necessarily meant to be realistic. But as time went on, equipment became more refined and sound designers expanded their bag of tricks. And that leads us to the climax of our little tale. We go to October 30th, 1938, and the broadcast of War of the Worlds. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. You're probably somewhat familiar with the story, but I think it deserves mentioning as part of this discussion. When War of the Worlds was broadcast for the first time, most people were tuned in to the Chase and Sanborn Hour, the most popular program on the radio. That meant while Orson Welles was saying this... We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Listeners were hearing this. The makers of Chase and Sanborn copied a superb blend you know is fresh, present the Chase and Sanborn Hour, and your host... And Orson Welles probably knew that would happen. Probably, although he would never own up to it. A little ways into the Chase and Sanborn hour, people began to switch around to see what else was on. As they dialed in on what they thought was the Mercury Theater on the Air program, what they heard instead was a newscast that was interrupting a program of music. Not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you will be entertained by the music of Raymond Raquello and his orchestra. Now let's put this in context. It was the eve of World War II. The idea of breaking into a radio program for news bulletins was brand new. And when those news breaks happened, the information contained in them was pretty serious. Here's one from just a few years later during the attacks on Pearl Harbor. The Jell-O program brought to you by Jell-O and Jell-O puddings. Ladies and gentlemen, a special announcement. The entire regular personnel of the sheriff's and police office has been placed on a two-platoon basis with 12-hour shift. All auxiliary personnel has been directed to stand by for emergency service instructions. The regular county defense program is functioning in an orderly manner, and citizens are urged to remain calm and avoid all unnecessary confusion because of hysteria. 
citizen volunteers are asked to go quietly to their nearest police or fire stations and offer their services if they wish to help. There is no immediate cause for alarm, and coolness will accomplish more than anything else. We return you now to Hollywood. And here's one from War of the Worlds. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. You can hear the similarities, right? There's the regular program, then a quick fade, a pause, and then the news starts. No one had really done this before. No one had recreated news bulletins that sounded the same way the real ones did. Even after we just spent all that time examining how Foley artists worked, it's important to note that they didn't really rely on those kind of gimmicks. Not for the first bit of the show, anyway. In this case, the sound design employed was much more subtle than that. What they did was mimic both the cadence of speech of the newscasters at the time and the rhythm and sound of the news breaks themselves. And they really stuck with this premise, too. These musical portions of Raymond Rochello and his orchestra went on for several minutes. bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Now, the news bulletins were seemingly unrelated at first, but Wells began to tie these narrative threads together, and the tension slowly ramped up. Ladies and gentlemen, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. Those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute, something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods, the bars, the, the gas tank, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. Coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. So just picture it for a second. You've missed the setup at the beginning of the hour. You turn into what you think is a music program, and you get that. As an aside, many people interviewed later said they thought the broadcast was about the Germans invading, and the news reporters had somehow mistaken Martians for Germans. But at any rate, by the time the Martians landed and the army was called in and losing ground to the alien invasion, some people listening were in a genuine panic.
Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. So let's just pause here for a second and think about this scene. From our safe place in the future, we know that there isn't an army of alien tripods stomping from Grover's Mill, New Jersey, towards New York City, flash-frying the hapless citizens as they flee in terror. But because of the way it was presented, the way the broadcast mimicked the news of the time so closely, there were a number of people who believed just that. Some of them ran into the streets grabbing shovels, shotguns, and baseball bats ready to repel the invaders. Others wrapped towels around their faces to protect against poison gas and ran with their children towards safer areas. But what they ran out to was... just the quiet streets. Leaves rustling in the trees. A late fall cricket here and there. And maybe some wind chimes next door. And old Bill Clay's dog barking a few houses down. And this is why I wanted to start our series here. At the time, radio was the height of technology and the place where people got a lot of their news and entertainment. And of course, things have changed radically since then, but to me, this illustrates the power that sound holds in our lives. And there's a whole bunch of neuroscience that I'm not gonna get into yet that backs me up here too. Sound has the power to affect our mood, our emotions, and even can affect us physically. Too much of a loud, unpleasant sound, like the jackhammer we heard earlier, can actually trigger chemicals in the brain that can cause a fight or flight reaction in our bodies. In this occasional series, we're going to explore sound in many different forms, from how music affects our mood, to people who make sounds for others. Orson Welles, of course, became a huge star, thanks in part to the publicity he received from this little stunt. But to zoom out to a larger picture for a minute, his real contribution to sound design wasn't some kind of trick or gimmick, but using the sound of the real world in order to make more convincing entertainment. And eventually, so would everybody. And that about does it for this week. Denver Orbit is written and produced by Josh Madison and Ryan Connell. Josh Madison does the editing and sound design. And happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you again in two weeks. One, two, three, four. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's the New Year's Eve song. Yeah. You got the wrong fucking song. There is no Thanksgiving song. <laughs> Thanksgiving. Oh, Thanksgiving. Let's have some Thanksgiving. I'm stuck in a turkey thing in my face because it's Thanksgiving. <laughs> huh? Yeah. A turkey thing? <clears throat> Hey there, and Joan, how's that thing? Still working in marketing. Hey, Cousin Fred, is your gout acting up?
<laughs> it looks pretty good from here. I hope you're feeling better. Well, Derek, come out this year. <laughs> <laughs> We've been wondering for so long. <laughs> Uh-oh, Fred's going to talk about Trump. He's going to talk about Trump all night long. Lots of Trump, lots of Trump all night long. And he likes him. <laughs> <laughs> there, it's a medley. <laughs> oh, oh dear. <laughs> Coming to Broadway next year. <laughs> and by Broadway, I mean down by the old Arby's. Yeah. South Broadway. 